0: If you turn on to watch the markets today, you'll see that they're red across the board. In fact, currently right now, the VIX at the time of recording this podcast is up by 0.48% point-wise. And of course, the whole market's in red across the board. And one of the reasons is Wall Street is say, is preparing for the earnings ahead that are coming up for next week. A lot of companies are, I guess, reporting earnings next week. And Wall Street's a little worried, even though there was some positive news within the market today. So... Wall Street is having this trend. I'm just constantly being worried, it seems like, to pay attention to that. Today with today's podcast, we're going to be talking about Kroger and Albertsons. The merger might be going through, potentially. They've announced today that it will potentially be happening, but now they have to convince regu- regulators and also investors about what could potentially happen. Okay. Then we have some positive, oh, before that positive news, we also have news from Beyond Meat, which is, A subject I never thought I'd be talking about. Beyond Meat is laying off some of its employees. And this comes at a time when an executive is having to leave the company for biting a man's nose too. What that could mean for the company going forward. Also, the banks reported earnings, Wells Fargo and JP Morgan. And ironically, they both did pretty well, which is quite surprising. And we'll end today's podcast today by talking about some more news from the war in Ukraine and how it has to do with Starlink, Elon Musk's company. And also there's been another Russian export that's actually been quietly been shipped out to Europe and it's not being talked about on the news. And so we'll talk about that today. With that being said, I have to remind you all before I begin this podcast, I'm not a professional advisor in any way, shape, or form. Everything I talk about in this podcast is for information purposes only. You need to do your own research before investing in any company as you're not guaranteed to make money in the stock market. I cannot give you any financial advice, so you need to go talk to your own professional advisor. This podcast is for information purposes and entertainment purposes only. If you think you like this content, please like and subscribe, as every like and subscription that we get helps grow this channel so we can be able to keep talking about that are happening on Wall Street that Wall Street isn't always willing to talk about. With that being said, let's begin today's podcast. Kroger agrees to buy rival grocery company Albertsons for $24.6 billion. Rival Groceries Kroger and Albertsons on Friday announced the plans to team up. The company said Kroger agreed to buy Albertsons for $34.10 a share in a deal valued at $24.6 billion. Albertsons shares had closed Thursday at $28.63 after surging on reports that a deal was the Intimate. Kroger is the second largest grocer by market share in the United States behind Walmart and Albertsons is fourth after Costco together. Kroger and Albertsons would be closer to second to Walmart. Both companies unanimous, unanimously approved the agreement, which will need regulatory approval. The tie up comes during a challenging time in the grocery industry. Supermarket have raced to keep up with shoppers, embrace new ways of restocking the fridge companies have had to invest in automation, employee training, and more as Consumers bounce between browsing store aisles, ordering home deliveries, and using curbside pickup. Groceries have been hit hard by inflation. Food prices have bumped 11.2% for from a year ago. According to the most recent Bureau of Labor Statistics data, companies ha- have had to weigh when it's passed on higher costs to consumers and when to absorb them to stay competitive. The grocery industry is highly framed. Privately held regional grocers such as HEB in Texas and Publix in Florida remain power players and command strong loyalty. Relative newcomers such as discounters Aldi and Lidl and Amazon's Amazon Fresh have attracted customers too. Plus, some Americans stock up on food at warehouse clubs such as Costco, Walmart-owned Sam's Club, and BJ Wholesales. Kroger and Albertsons also have numerous store brands including Names that operators have acquired over the years. Kroger's banners include Freddie Meyer, Ralph's, and King King's Spoor's, and Albertson's banners include Safeway, Acme, and Tom Thumb. So, what's going to be interesting about this, okay, is how they're going to have to convince US regulators to be able to have this to go through, and of course, shareholders. And from the article from CNBC, which, which goes into more details about convincing regulators, it says, Kroger, is has said said, is already planned to convince regulators. Chief Financial Officer Gary Miller Chip said on Friday's call with investors at the company's anticipation that they will have to dis- divest between 100 and 375 stores. One possibility, he said, is establishing a subsidiary that would be spun off of Albertson shareholders prior to the deal closing and would operate as a standalone public company. Kroger and Albertsons would work together and with the federal trade commissions to decide which stores would be part of the spinoff company. Miller Chip said that $34 and 10 cents per share of the deal would be reduced based on the number of stores. Kroger has done its homework and feels confident that the deal can go through. CEO Rodney McMullen said, we'll sit down with the FTC as soon as we can. Now, I don't care about the investor side as much. I just care about the Kroger and Albertsons side with regulators. What becomes interesting is if you actually combine these two stores, They'll be number two on the list like we just read, but it's about 16% they'll own for the grocery se- grocery segment overall, okay? Walmart has a commanding lead at 21%. So I personally believe that the merger would be good in the long run because it would force not only other smaller ones to combine, but at the same token, it would just be like, okay, you got to be able to start having more competition. Now, granted, Sam's Club is on this list too, and they own about 4% of the market currently right now. So in reality, Walmart actually owns about 26%, it looks like, because it's 21%, no, 25% of the market when it comes to groceries. And if Kroger and Albertsons were to combine, that's at least 16% of the market. So Walmart stops becoming a somewhat of a monopoly in the grocery sector. It's gonna be interesting to see what regulators think at the end of the day. And what they decide they want to do to spin off. So, but going on to our next article about food too. Beyond Meat to cut 19% of its workforce as sales and stock struggle. You know, it's interesting. When Beyond Meat went public, I think the shares went as high as like $200 a share. And I remember thinking, I was like, why would anyone want to invest in a meat company? I guess you want to call it meat actually. It's a substitute a substitute for meat, Okay. No offense, I didn't like Beyond Meat stu- products. I tried some of it and it was like, it's not for me. But it's still interesting to see how this is now happening. Beyond Meat plans to cut 19% of its workforce or about 200 employees, the company said on Friday in a regulatory filing. The cuts are expected to be completed by the end of the year and are, in fact, uh, to achieve cash flow positive operations within the second half of 2023. Shares of the company, which are already down about 78% so far this year, as the company struggles with declining sales fell in mid-morning training. The stock earlier this week notched a 52-week low at $12.76 per share and was the latest seen trading for about $13.90 per share, dragging the company's market value below $900 million. The announcement came as the company also revealed its chief operating officer, Doug Ramsey, left the company weeks after he was arrested for allegedly biting a man's nose and punching a uh, Sarubru, uh, Sarubru in Arkansas parking garage. As part of the job cuts, the role of the chief growth officer has been, uh, has been eliminated and Dean Jurgens, who has held the role, will leave the company. The company also says the chief financial officer, Philip Hardin, stepped down from his post earlier this week. Hardin will leave and the company, after a roughly two-week transition period, of to pursue other opportunity, according to the filing. L- uh, Libby uh, Kutab, previously Beyond Meets vice president for financial planning analysis, as well as the investor relations, assumed top financial role on Thursday. I would stay away from Beyond Meat. And this is not financial advice, okay? Just in my honest opinion. Beyond Meat was one of those stocks when it went public, you probably made a lot of money if you had invested in it early. Now, Beyond Meat is just another company. I mean, in all seriousness, I don't think that I did not like Beyond Meat's product lines. I tried a couple of them. And at the end of the day, I was like, yeah, this is not for me. I mean, some people, it's, it's for them. And that's totally fine. If they're really into that stuff, so be it. But I mean, plant-based plant-based meat, that's just a little weird to me In the end of the day. But beyond meat overall, especially with management issues with management leaving and management having to step down, having to lay off people, beyond meat is going to struggle for a while. It will be, okay? It's not like the American people are going to wake up one day and say, we're going to have more plant-based food in our diets. I mean, if they did, that's great. But... I think Beyond Meat's days are pretty much done behind it. So let's keep an eye out for Beyond Meat and see what happens in the future. But I just don't get when food becomes, I mean, food is a valuable resource, but I don't get when Wall Street gets super excited about a food company. I mean, if it was a technology company, that'd be a different story, but it's not. So keep an eye out for Beyond Meat. Now for the banking sector, Wells Wells Fargo shares jumped 3% as bank tops expectations despite boosting loan loss reserves. Wells Fargo said on Friday that it's still seeing historic low loan uh, deliquencies, but it made a decision to build up reserves as the economy slows, cutting into its third quarter profits. Wells Fargo shares were up more than 3% as its results topped expectations. Here's how the bank did compared with refinitive estimates. Earnings per share was $1.30 adjusted versus $1.09 expected. Revenue was $19.51 billion versus $18.78 billion expected. In the quarter ended September 30th, net income fell more than 30% to $3.53 billion or $0.85 per share from $5.12 billion or $1.17 per share during the same quarter a year ago. After adjustments, Wells Fargo's $1.30 per share, topping analysis estimates. The company performance was significantly hurt by operating losses of $2 billion or $0.45 per share related to the legit leg- legitation customer uh, rediment Re- re- Redemption and regulatory matters, the company said in a statement. Wells is operating under a series of consent orders tied to its 2016 fake account scandal, including one of the Fed that cap its asset growth. In the latest period, the bank has set aside 784 million for credit losses after reducing its provisions by 1.4 billion a year ago. The provisions include a 385 million increase in its allowance for credit. Losses reflecting loan growth and less favorable economic environment, the bank said. Wells Fargo's position, well, as we will continue to benefit from higher rates, ongoing disciplined expense management, Chief Executive Charlie Schaaf said in a statement, both consumers and business customers remain in a strong financial conditions, and we continue to see historical low uh, delinquencies and high payment rates across our portfolio. I think Wells Fargo is getting close to being out of the doghouse with Wall Street. And honestly, okay. I remember that scan back in 2016, and I remember thinking, I was like, man, this is going to be a while before they can get back on their feet, and it seems like things are coming around for Wells Fargo. Uh, Small disclosure, I do have a small position in Wells Fargo. It's a very, very long-term position, but maybe Wells Fargo is finally turning things around, okay? And maybe we'll start hearing more positive news from the banking sector in the future from Wells Fargo, but... People are slowly forgetting about that scandal. And as people forget about things and as the US government stops being involved in regulating it, things will t- hopefully turn around for the company. But speaking of other banks too, and this is the more important one, JP Morgan Chase tops estimates as bank reaps more interest income than expected after jump in rates. JP Morgan Chase on Friday posted results that topped analysis estimates as the biggest U.S. bank by assets took advantage of rising rates to generate more interest income. Here are the numbers. Earnings $3.12 a share, beating the 2.88 estimate of analysis surveyed by Refinitiv. Revenue is $33.49 billion, exceeding the $332.1 billion estimate. The bank said third quarter profit fell 17% from a year earlier to $9.74 billion, or $3.12 a share, as the firm added to reserves for bad loans by a net $808 million, excluding a $0.24 per share hit, tied to losses on investment securities. The bank posted earnings of $3.36 a share, handily topping analysis estimates. Revenue jumped 10% to $33.49 billion in the quarter, thanks to higher interest rates as the Federal Reserve battles inflation. Net interest income surged 34% to $17.6 billion in the period because higher rates and expanded book of loans, the top analysis expectations by more than $600 million. Shares of New York-based bank rose 1.5% in early trading. Now, this is where things get interesting. JP Morgan CEO Jamie Dimon noted that while the consumer and businesses were financially robust in the period, the economic picture was darkening. Quote There are significant headwinds immediately in front of us stubbornly high inflation, leading to higher global interest rates and uncertain impacts of quantitative tightening, the war in Ukraine, which is increasing all geopolitical risk, and the fragile state of oil supply and prices, Dimon said in a statement. While we are hoping for the best, we always remain vigilant and we are prepared for bad outcomes. Early signs of the headwinds began appearing in the quarter. JP Morgan booked $959 million in losses on securities after opting to sell treasuries and mortgage bonds to reposition its portfolio. Analysis were concerned about the impact about a slowing economy would have on the bank. If U.S. unemployment levels rise to 5 to 6%, the bank would probably would have to bolster loan losses, reserves by around $5 billion to $6 billion over the next quarter, Diamond said Friday in a conference call. JP Morgan, the the biggest U.S. bank by assets, which watched closely for clues on how banks are navigating a confusing environment. On one hand, the unemployment levels remain low, meaning that consumers and businesses have little difficulty repaying loans. Rising interest rates remain that bank's core lending activity is becoming more profitable and volatile in financial markets has been a boon to fixed income traders. Jamie Dimon knows what's up. He really does. Whatever he says is happening. And I firmly believe what he's saying might be coming. It's hard to tell, fully, but he's a really, really smart banker. If you want to know where things are going, J.P. Morgan Chase is the company to pay attention to. It's hence why, when, and small disclosure, I do have a small position in J.P. Morgan Chase as well, and that's one huge reason why I invested into J.P. Morgan Chase back in the days because I realized this is not financial advice. I realized just how smart J.P. Morgan was, and I wanted to be able to pay attention to what he was saying because that could determine how the markets were going. Jamie Darman's a really smart guy. He always knows what's up. Now, for some news for the U.S. taxpayer and for my European listeners as well. You know, in the U.S. currently right now, we've been talking a lot about the spending bills for Ukraine and what supplies have been sent over to Ukraine to help fight the Ukraine against Russia. Okay. You might have to fit a new bill, fellow taxpayers in the United States. And uh, this could potentially push Starlink to eventually become a publicly traded company, which would make things a little interesting. Musk says SpaceX cannot fund Starlink in Ukraine indefinitely. After a report, he asked Pentagon to pay. Elon Musk said that SpaceX cannot continue to fund Starlink terminals in Ukraine indefinitely. After a report suggested his space exploration company, asked the pentagon to cover the cost space spacex donated starlink internet terminals have been crucial in keeping ukraine's military online during the war against russia even as communication infrastructure gets destroyed last week Monks tweeted the operation has cost spacex 80 million so far and will exceed 100 million by the end of the year on friday the billionaire who is also the ceo of tesla said spacex cannot fund the existing system indefinitely and said several thousand more terminals have have high data usage it follows CNN's report that SpaceX told the U.S. government it could no longer fund Starlink serv- services in Ukraine. The report cited documents obtained from the Pentagon said SpaceX is asking the U.S. government to pay for the terminals instead. The letter from SpaceX to the Pentagon claimed that Ukraine's use of Starlink could cost close to $400 million over the next 12 months, according to CNN report. And obviously, an ambassador for Ukraine told Musk to pretty much F off. And... Because of what Musk's had said of how the war with Russia and Ukraine might end. You know, our taxpayer dollars is probably going to be funding next for Star for Starlink if they want to continue to be able to use it. Because the United States government right now is all for being able to make sure that we end the Russian invasion of Ukraine, which is fine. They can do what they want to do. But now, more now, probably in the next bill of the package deal that we're going to send over to Ukraine, I have a feeling that some of that package deal is now going to consist of Starlink in there as well. Or maybe there'll be a new bill passed in, in the government that's going to say, hey, we got to make sure Starlink is fully operational for the Ukrainian forces. It would be interesting. If Starlink is no longer in use, how much longer does this war last between Russia and Ukraine? I don't see the United States giving it up to be honest. I see the United States being like, we got to fund it. So, I personally believe the US government's going to pass a new bill, or maybe it will be in the next spending bill for Ukraine where Starlink is going to be part of that as well. Now for my European listeners, okay? We've been hearing a lot about how Russian oil is not going to be imported into into Western Europe. That's fine. That's your guys' choice in the end. And obviously, that's the end result right now as you You guys are not getting as much Russian oil, which is not fully true because as we reported from oilprices.com a few months ago or a few weeks ago back, China was buying Russian oil and then shipping that Russian oil back to Europe. So in, in a way, Europe, you're still getting Russian oil in some way, shape or form. Did you also know too, because I found this article right before, well, when trying to get ready for this podcast for today, I was doing some research and I found this report from CNBC. Did you know that you're still getting some type of energy from Russia? My fellow European podcast listeners says Europe is quietly importing Russian nuclear energy from CNBC. Russia's nuclear fuel industry remains conspicuously untouched by European sanctions more than seven months into the Kremlin's war in Ukraine. Such a dismay of Kiev, Kiev officials, and environmental campaigners. Despite eight rounds of sanctions targeting measures against energy exports and calls for Ukraine to impose a full embargo on nuclear trade, shipments of nuclear fuel of EU member states continue to make their way from Russia. Rodrigo, a U.S. sustainable financial manager at Environmental Group's Greenpeace, told CNBC via telephone that it's absolutely madness for the bloc to continue bankrolling the Kremlin by ignoring Russian Russia's nuclear fuel trade. Quote, if EU governments are serious about stopping war, they need to cut the European nuclear industry umbilical cord to the Kremlin and focus instead of accelerating energy savings and renewables, Rodrigo said. On presenting its latest sanction packages, the European Commission did not propose targeting the trade of Russian nuclear fuel. The EU's executive arm has previously targeted Russian oil, gas and coal as part of the broader strategy to ratchet up the economy pressures on the Kremlin. Hungary and Bulgaria were the most vocal in opposing sanctions on Russia, uranium, and other nuclear tech last week, according to Rodrigo. The commission was repeated, condemned Russia's war in Ukraine, accusing Vladimir Putin of using energy as a weapon to drive up commodity prices and so uncertainty across 27 nation blocks. Moscow denies weaponizing energy supplies. Okay, and we're not going to get into... A little bit of that more, but we do need to talk about this because these are the countries that are currently affected by Russian nuclear energy because there's a company here. It says here, Russia is a dominant player in the global nuclear fuel market and any move to break the EU's resilience on its services would likely be far pain-free, particularly with Rosatom at the heart of European dependency. Backed by Putin, Rosatom not only dominates the civilian industry, but is also in charge of Russia's nuclear weapons arsenal and is currently overseeing the occupied nuclear power plant stationed in Ukraine. There are 18 Russian nuclear reactors in Europe, in countries including Finland, Slovakia, Hungary, Bulgaria, and the Czech Republic. Okay, 18, 18 of them in Europe, okay? Underlying the scale of Russia's nuclear influence in other member states, even as the Kremlin's onslaught of Ukraine continues, Hungary in late August announced that the construction of two new nuclear reactors by Rosatom. Oh, we are being played. We are. We're being played in some way, shape, or form. The other day, in fact, last two days in my past podcast, Joe Biden has been extremely mad at Saudi Arabia because Saudi Arabia couldn't push... OPEC production cut by one month because they had to help fund Russia and their war against Ukraine. In reality, Russian oil is still funding because China and India are still buying it. And now we're getting reports that like we just read from CNBC that part of the Russian nuclear one is now uh, still funding Europe and there's no end in sight potentially. Because they've been quietly bringing it in. Because here's the numbers too. The EU paid about 210 euros, or 203.7 million, to import raw uranium from Russia last year, according to estimates reported by Investigate Europe. And another 245 million euros was paid to import uranium from Kazakhstan, where mining of nuclear fuel is controlled by, you guessed it, Rosatom. Okay. Well, we're talking about serious amount of money here. Greenpeace Rodrigo told CNBC, noting that these estimates only accounted for uranium imports and the EU dependency covers services across the supply chain. We're being played in some way, shape, or form. Joe Biden's blaming Saudi Arabia and OPEC, when in reality, we in the United States, we should be drilling our own oil so we don't have to rely on these other countries. Europe is all acting tough In front of Russia, but in reality, they're still importing Russian gas, whether it's through China or now that we find out, uranium, because of Russia. Now, it's not granted all of Europe is doing it. We we read the states that or countries that were doing it. But at the end of the day, Russia is still going to be able to fund its effort against Ukraine, and the United States is still going to fund its efforts uh, to fight Russia. At the end of the day, whoever wins. That economy is going to probably survive and the economy that loses the war, is going to suffer. This is a, this is a lose lose for whoever's involved right now. No matter what, there's a country that being torn apart. Markets are going to be in turmoil soon. Potentially can't prove it might be, but the United it's, it's literally United States versus Russia economy. Who's going to be able to outlast the other Europe. You're bankrolling Russia. You might act tough on TV, some of these countries. But these are questions that you should all be asking my fellow podcast listeners. What's really going on at times and how the market's going to be affected going forward. I'll leave it there. With that being said, fellow podcast listeners, I hope you have enjoyed this. If you had, please like and subscribe to this podcast and share with friends or family as we need to get the news out about what's happening in the markets that CNBC and other news report stations aren't willing to talk about at times. With that being said, fellow podcast listeners, thank you so much for listening to this podcast today.